Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, which uh, is, I just love Acts. It's, it's, it's fun, it's powerful, it's the beginning of what God was doing through the church and the early church. And if you've ever seen me teach before, at any time, you've probably seen this picture. Uh, this picture was from the Hubble telescope. I can't, I'll, I'll sit a little longer. <laughs> Seriously, when I sit down there, I'm like, when I see Pastor John teach, I'm like, man, I want to be that man. I want to be that man. I do. I want to be John. And one of the things he does is he sits when he teaches. I don't want to be John. Okay. <laughs> but if you've seen me teach before, if you've seen me teach before, I've shown you this picture. And this was taken by the Hubble telescope. I think it was 2018. And what they did is they captured, this isn't the entire shot that they captured, but it's a portion of it. They captured 15 thousand galaxies in one frame 15,000 galaxies in one frame and what I typically do is you know I'll, I have a couple of lenses here we'll have this represent the lens the naturalistic lens this is the lens where there's no opportunity for God to exist the majority view in our society is this view looks cool <laughs> This morning I was looking for lenses or frames and I'm like, this is what I got? This is it? <laughs> and so when a naturalistic view looks at that, they have to come up with, because of this view that there is no God, they have to come up with an explanation for why all of that exists. Now, we have a biblical worldview. And so we'll use these cool glasses <laughs> for the biblical worldview, okay? So when we look at, at, at this from a biblical perspective, which a biblical world, the Bible teaches that God created all of that. We have a very clear reason why all that exists and why there's 15,000 galaxies. But this is out of date. We have the James Webb telescope now. So that spiral galaxy right there Hubble couldn't see it. Oh, it may have been a little spot on Hubble. But the James Webb can see way farther into places that the Hubble couldn't reach. And it caught this spiral galaxy that they estimate to be one billion light years away. Here's five galaxy clusters that the James Webb captured, that these are 3.5 billion light years away. We would have to travel at the speed of light for 3.5 billion years to reach those. From a naturalist perspective, there is no spirit world. There is no God. When you look at this, you have to come up with an explanation for why all of that exists, which is why you come up with crazy things like multiverse. Multiverse isn't a, you know, MCU thing, or not MCU, MCU, Marvel. It's not a Marvel thing. Okay, that's a scientific theory. 
So that, that's, you know, we have Stephen Hawking proved that, you know, we live in four dimensions. But they proved that he proved mathematically there's at least ten dimensions, six of which we can't even measure. So you look at this, that there's stuff that's out of this dimension that exists, but you don't know what it is, but it certainly couldn't be a spirit world, couldn't be God. But then when we look through a biblical lens, we have a clear understanding. God created all of that. And if God created all that, he created all that displaying his glory. If he's that big, that he could create something that big, he's bigger. I like this. This is the Carina Nebula. The detail on this. God created that. We know this from Scripture. But if you don't have a biblical worldview, you have a naturalistic worldview, then you think this is just an accident. That it just kind of spontaneously happened. Well, what we're talking about here is a worldview. I've got to take these off because I can't read my notes. Talk about a worldview. A worldview, if you have notes there, you can fill them out. A worldview is one's lens through which one interprets everything in life and in the universe. That's what a worldview is. And all of us, every person in this room has a worldview. Many people in this room have a biblical worldview. But there's some have a naturalistic worldview. In fact, I would wager that there's probably many of you that kind of have a, a dual worldview where you're kind of mixing what the world says with what God says. Our worldview affects everything. It's not just the way we interpret galaxies or the big questions in life, but our daily lives. Each breath we take, every step, every circumstance we face, which brings us to Acts chapter 23 and the circumstances that Paul is in right now. They're pretty crummy. We've been going through this and, and Pastor John's done such an excellent job showing. I mean, Paul has to be deflated here. He has to be discouraged. I mean, Paul, his biggest desire was to speak the truth, the gospel, the good news that the Messiah has come to his people, to the Jewish people. And he knew that God had called him to Jerusalem. He couldn't wait to get there, even though he's warned on the way, you're going to be arrested in Jerusalem. But he knew God was calling him there. And he gets there and he finally gets to, to share the gospel with his people that he so dearly loved. But Luke, who, who's his traveling companion at this point, he doesn't record one person converting to Christ. Did you, ever, did you notice that? Not one. He finally gets to share the gospel with his people and nobody responds. In fact, the result was three riots that we went through, that Pastor John took us through. And he's arrested now. Oh, arrested for what? Nobody came to Christ. And he has to feel deflated. He has to feel like a, a, a failure. In fact, the, the Roman soldiers had to, had to go and extract Paul from the scene just so that the crowd wouldn't tear him apart. 
and feeling hopeless and it's the end of his ministry because he blew it? I can relate to that. But then Jesus shows up. I can relate to that too. Pastor John read this. Jesus showed up to Paul. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. It's like, take courage, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And that's why having a biblical worldview makes all the difference. Because from a naturalist point of view, Paul was a failure. It's a failure. But from a biblical worldview, we know that God was in control of what's going on. And in life circumstances, they're often deflating, they're confusing, and they're chaotic. It's like someone trying to understand a 3D movie without the right lens. You ever do that? I mean, 3D technology is so much better than this now. This is kind of the old style 3D technology. But you look at it and trying to, if you've ever like been in a theater and you take off the 3D lenses just to see what it's like. Anybody do that? Or am I the only one? Okay, thank you. And you'll get a headache, right? You know, but, the, but these, I don't know if you noticed, but this has a red lens and a, and a blue lens here. So these are 3D glasses for this 3D technology. So while you all get a headache... Because I have the right lens, it looks like they're flying in front of the screen. I can understand it. It's not chaotic. It's not giving me a headache. It's not making me anxious. Whoa. Okay? I mean, it's like he's like floating there. Oh, and he just fell. I mean, that is because I have the right lens. And so often when we're facing the chaos of life and the the chaoticness and we're getting anxious, depressed. This is America. I know there's anxious and depressed people in here. Okay? Our society has pandemic of that. It's because we're not seeing life through the right lens. We're not seeing our discouraging circumstances through the right lens. We need a biblical lens. Most people... Live circumstantially according to the lies, philosophies, and solutions the world advocates, which explains why most people are suffering through anxiety, anger, addictions, depression, and hopelessness. However, the right lens changes everything. And what we're going to learn as we go through this chapter, chapter 23, is that a biblical lens generates peace when your life is in chaos. We could end right there. That's all you need to know. A biblical lens generates peace when your life is in chaos. Lord, I, I know, God, there, there's so much chaos represented in this room. There's families that are struggling. There's crises at work. There's children who've walked away from you. There's dreams that are going unmet. There's marriages on the brink of falling apart. 
in the midst of the chaos, Lord, would you change our lens this morning? Use your word. Just as Pastor John said earlier, just to transform us more into the image of Christ. And Lord, that cannot happen through an eloquent speech or superior wisdom, but it's only through a demonstration of your Spirit's power so that our faith doesn't rest upon man, but instead upon God's power. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I just put my glasses on upside down. There we go. All right. I had the wrong lens. Okay. Let's dig in. Chapter 23, uh, Pastor John left off last week. He read chapter 20, or verse 23, and he called for two centurions. And so we kind of uh, jump into this story midstream. I mean, Pastor John has done such a great job of going through it. Uh, but here, we, this is chaotic circumstances. I mean, this, this commander, he has a problem. He has Paul. And he doesn't know what to do with this guy, but he knows that Jerusalem is on the brink of just total breakdown, like France this morning. See what's going on in France? The riots? It's bad stuff. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay? The heart of man is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Well, after stepping up to suppress these riots, he, he just uncovered a, a sinister plot by a Jewish leader, the Jewish leaders to ambush the soldiers with the goal of killing Paul. That was last week. Remember, Paul's nephew overheard what was happening, went to the commander, and, and the commander, that's why he went in and got Paul, and, or he didn't bring Paul back in because he knew of the plot. So he commands drastic measures. And so he called to, for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That's nine o'clock at night. And provide mounts and so a horse or horses to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And so that's 200 soldiers plus 70 horsemen plus 200 spearmen. That's 470 guards to guard one prisoner. Reminds me of this. You know, this is, this is a prisoner transport, but it's no ordinary prisoner. Okay, this is actually, what's his name here? Ratko Mladic. He was convicted of war crimes against humanity. He's a bad dude. And so they have all of this protection, machine guns, armored vans to transport him, not just because he's dangerous, but because his supporters, if they tried to get in there and capture or free him, or if his detractors tried to kill him, it would destroy the peace. Same thing going on here with Paul is that they're, they're trying to protect him because this could break the peace. And if you're a commander of a Roman area, a Roman district, the one goal is Pax Romana. It's, it's the peace of Rome. Your job is to keep the peace. And if peace isn't kept, you could lose your head. Well, ancient Romans didn't have machine guns and armored vehicles to transport high-profile prisoners. And the commander didn't want to risk this, this Roman citizen being killed in his custody. Thus, the commander minimizes the risk by, speak, by sneaking Paul out of Jerusalem under the cover of night 
while guarded by 470 trained Roman warriors. This is the third time that Paul's had to sneak out at cover of night, by the way. Now, this commander, from a naturalist perspective that there is no God and that there's no spirit world, that was a really strategic move to make sure to keep the peace. Most academia will evaluate historical moves based upon this lens. That was a really smart thing. But from a biblical lens, there is far more going on here than meets the eye. Because it goes back to this, remember? Pastor John read verse 11, but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. From a naturalistic worldview, this was merely a highly guarded prisoner transport. However, through a biblical lens, we clearly see that God was launching Paul on a fourth missionary journey to Rome. On this mission trip, God would use the Roman justice system to pay for all of Paul's travel expenses. Plus, on the journey, God would arrange for Paul to share the good news about Jesus with every influential politician and person he would meet on the way. Don't miss this because I'm going to say this. Take your phone out. Silence, please. It's really distracting. Sorry. (laughs) So just silence your phone. Okay. Time back in. If you look at the back of your Bible, normally they're going to have Paul's three missionary journeys. And this drives me crazy. Paul didn't just have three missionary journeys. This is another one. And usually they'll label this trip as Paul's journey to Rome. It's his fourth missionary journey. It's just that God arranged so that the Roman Empire paid for it. Pretty good stuff. And this missionary journey, this is what we're going to follow over the next month or so as we finish the book of Acts. We're going to follow this journey and all the crazy stuff that happens. But what's amazing is God didn't just get the Roman government to pay for the whole thing. He also arranged that Paul got to meet with the most influential leader of every city and district along the way. First one we're going to see this morning, and next week actually, in chapter 24. A biblical lens generates peace when your life is in crisis. And because Paul had a biblical lens, not a naturalistic lens, because he knew the promises of God in his life, he knew that they were real, that there's far more going on than the physical, he knew He could have peace because a biblical lens generates peace when our lives are in chaos. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Okay, so today we have a rest report. So there, oh, I didn't have the verse on there. Sorry. You just got to look at this guy. Today we have, we have a rest report. So I generally have a picture of the, the, the criminal and it'll have his record. I mean, look at the record at the bottom there. I mean, that's crazy. It's kind of like Rachel's record down there, but, right? (laughs) Here's another one. This is what he did. It has a picture. It describes the crime, who he is, what he did. That's what arrest records are. Well, they didn't have 
arrest records in the first century, but they did have case letters that they would send that would go along with the prisoner. And so when a prisoner was forwarded onto a superior, the subordinate officer was required to send the accused with a written letter stating the case. Thus, verses 25 through 30, it records Paul's case letter. That's what we're going to read right here. Just, it's just like his arrest record that was sent along with him. You know, it's just a side note here. How do we know what this letter said? It's because of who's traveling with Paul. It's Luke. Luke's a researcher. He's, he's educated. He's taking this stuff. He's traveling with Paul. He's like, can I see the letter? And he wrote down what the letter is. I say that to say this. This is not mythology. This is history. This was an actual arrest record, case record, sent along with Paul. And we have it word for word. And part of it, I think, made Luke laugh. But here we go. We'll, we'll read that part in a second here. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lys- Lysias. I wish we had Roman names. <laughs> you know, my name is Lucius. My name is Maximus, okay? It's awesome. So I would like to be called Brinus from now on, okay? All right? Yeah. But he wrote, okay, Claudius Lysias, and, and this is something we specially learn from Paul's letters, but also from the seven letters in the book of Revelation, is that in the first century, they signed their letters at the beginning, so you'd know who it was from. Makes sense. You know, we wait to the, the end, you know, uh, blah, 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 from Brian. No, they started at the beginning. They signed right up at the beginning. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Okay, don't miss the context here just for a frame of reference. Felix now holds the same position that Pontius Pilate held at the time of Jesus. Only bigger because he's not just the governor over Judea. He's the governor of Judea and Samaria as well, so it's bigger territory. To the most excellent, excellent, all right, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. (laughs) That's where Luke's laughing. (laughs) That's not what happened. You know, he, he didn't know that, or that Paul was a Roman citizen. You know, he went in there. He was about to have him flogged. Remember that? And that's when he discovered that he was a Roman citizen. This is called revisionist history. There's nothing new under the sun. Every politician has revisionist history. Every news, you know, whatever. It's always revisionist history about what actually, what actually happened. Verse 28, and, and when I wanted, and when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. That was the Sanhedrin. We read about this. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Don't miss this. This is his case case letter. This is his arrest record. 
And in the letter describing the case against Paul laying out why he was in custody, the commander who had him arrested admits that Paul was innocent of any crime. In the very arrest letter. Imagine if we had an arrest record of somebody in prison, and in there goes to why they were arrested and their felony history and all this. It said they actually didn't break a crime, but they're still in custody. That's injustice. Pay attention to injustice in the book of Acts. There's a lot of it. In the Gospels, there's a lot of injustice. You know, as Americans, we want justice. We want justice. When do we want it now? Right? We want our rights. Well, it's interesting. Throughout the book of Acts, injustice is a constant theme. And that's intentional about this. It's intentional. That Luke wanted the reader of the book of Acts to know that God doesn't necessarily take away the injustices we face in this life. Who, who did he write this book to? Theophilus. There's different ideas about who Theophilus is. It's to the church as a whole. I personally believe he was an individual. And as Luke's writing this letter, he wants his friend Theophilus to know, hey, injustice it's a part of life. That's a part of society. And that God doesn't necessarily take away the injustices we face in life, in this life. Instead, the Lord will faithfully be present with us in the midst of dangerous circumstances and will leverage unfair circumstances to accomplish his purposes through our suffering. Do you hear that, Americans? Our highest goal yeah, I, I told you earlier, we kind of, in the church, we tend to blend lenses. It's dangerous. That's truth mixed with poison. This world is unjust because this world is ruled by the kingdom of the enemy right now. But greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. When unfair things happen, when injustice happens, from a biblical perspective, we can know God can leverage the injustice and the unfair situations. Trust me, there's unfair situations all the time. But God can leverage unfair situations to accomplish his will and his glory in our lives. That's how a biblical lens generates peace. When your life is in chaos, when you're facing unfair circumstances, you can have peace. Now, I don't know about you, but when I face unfair circumstances, that's not my first reaction. It's not. I have to purposely, every single day, put on the armor of God. Put on the belt of truth. God, I will only live by truth. I will only speak the truth. The breastplate of righteousness. God, my righteousness isn't anything I've earned or done. It's what Jesus gave me. The the sandals or the boots of the gospel of peace. It's okay. I can have peace regardless of how unfair the circumstance is. The shield of faith to extinguish those flaming arrows. I trust you, God. I trust in your purposes. The helmet of salvation, even if I die in battle, I'm still saved. 
And then the only weapon I'll use is the sword of the Spirit. What that is doing is it's taking off this worldly lens and saying, I'm not going to look at my unfair circumstances from the world's perspective. I'm going to look at it with the right lens. So all of a sudden, the chaos starts to make sense. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I love that story last week. Paul's nephew, he overhears this. Yeah, that was just an accident. No, it wasn't. Not from a biblical biblical perspective. God's watching out for Paul. When it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for, for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. That's the end of the letter. And that explains why he has 470 guards guarding this high-profile prisoner. You know what's interesting? There's a lot of critique over Pontius Pilate and the way that he handled that situation. Probably how he should have handled Jesus from the world's perspective. (laughs) Man, we're going to lock him up, get him out of town. He didn't do anything. That would have been a smart thing to do. But there was something much bigger going on that Jesus was offering his life willingly to sacrifice his life so that we don't have to die in eternity, okay? Where were we? Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And so you can see on this this journey to, to Rome... As it's going around here, we've taken our first step, or he's taken his first step. He's gone from Jerusalem to Antipatris, and, and he goes there. And this is the first stop on this journey. And it's important to understand why they stopped. If you look at this kind of a 3D map, topographical map, they start up here in Jerusalem, and they travel about 30 miles down to Antipatris. And you can see the difference between the, the areas the, the first part of the journey, the first 30 miles is through mountain valleys and territories. There's lots of places for ambushers to hide there. So there's 470 soldiers marching him through this. There's lots of opportunity to, to be overtaken. But once you get to Antipatris, it turns into to, to wide open land all the way to Caesarea. And so you can see they, they, they stopped here. It's amazing how the Bible matches the geographic geography. It's crazy. It's awesome because it's actually history. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with them. So just the 70 horsemen go from this point on. And then the rest and returned to the barracks. And so the rest, and so, you know, the, the 470 went to that first route. But then when they, they, on the way, the last 30, 40 miles up to Caesarea, just the horsemen go with them because they're in open country now. Nobody's going to catch the horsemen. The foot soldiers are just going to slow them down. So they get up there to Caesarea, and you can see that happening. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter, that letter we read, his arrest letter, to the governor, that's Governor Felix, they also presented Paul to him. So we finally come to Felix, and Felix is really interesting because we actually have some pretty accurate artwork of Governor Felix. He looked like this. <laughs> no. No, we don't. This is, this is probably more in line with what he looked like. Yeah, I remember in high school, I was reading Acts and going, Felix, the cat? Whatever. 
Here's a little bit about Felix. So, so Felix, he was the governor of Judea and Samaria. Now, Felix is really interesting. Really interesting because he's a governor, but he wasn't born upper class. He actually grew up as a child of slaves. He was a slave. He and his brother. So he and his brother were, were playmates with a boy named Claudius. Does that name sound familiar? So they were slaves, maybe palace slaves. I actually don't know that. But they grew up with, with Claudius and they played with him. Kids don't care who you are. They just want to, you know, play baseball because, of course, that's God's favorite game. So it's a boy named Claudius who grew up to be the emperor of Rome at this time. Claudius was right before Nero. Caesar Claudius freed Felix from slavery. Now we get to these really interesting things with that. I'm not going to talk about. But later, Claudius appointed his childhood friend as governor of Judea and Samaria. That's how he got to this position. Okay? But he was infamously corrupt. Infamously corrupt. It's written about how, what a snake he was. Known for being greedy, promiscuous, and of the lowest moral character. I was reading some of the history on Felix, and there were words I had to look up, and they basically said scumbag. (laughs) (laughs) He's a scumbag. We'll see that next week when Pastor John teaches the next chapter. He actually tries uh, tries to get Paul to offer him a bribe. He was corrupt. He was a bad dude. Well, this corrupt, unjust snake is in charge of Paul's life for the next two years. That's not very fair. Paul didn't do anything. But a biblical lens generates peace when your life is in chaos. Verse 34. Uh... Sorry, that's a copy-paste thing. It's not there. That's why you need your Bible open, like Harvey up here, okay? That's a good lesson right there. Always have your Bible open, because I might change it, okay? Be like the JWs and kind of change words they don't like. All right, this is what it says. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, Cilicia, excuse me, he said, I will hear when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. This is like Herod's palace. And so it's not like he was kept in a, a deep, dark dungeon. This wasn't that bad of a place to be kept. And, and these are actually the ruins. I'm really excited to hear from Pastor John next week because... He's been here. You know, and he, he's, he's walked among all these ruins. You can see the amphitheater up there. And I was talking with him before the service about how he stood where the Bema seat was, where this next chapter all happened. Where this last couple of verses we just read, I mean, this all happened right here. I hope you have pictures. All right, good. This is actually a nice place to stay, a room in Herod's palace at Caesarea. Paul wasn't free, though, to come and go as he wished. And that's how 
they wanted, that, that's how they wanted to hold him until such a time as his accusers would come. And they're going to come next week. But before I close here, that's the end of the chapter. Before I close, I want to read a verse from the next chapter that reveals how long he was kept there. Meanwhile, this is chapter 24, verse 26. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul. <laughs> He's looking for a bribe. He hasn't done anything, but if you pay me, you're free. Who's ever traveled in like some of the developing world? That's how you get out of a ticket. They want a bribe. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, you give him 100,000 zlotties, and he's like, thank you, you can go, okay? be about two bucks. But um, <laughs> he hoped he'd be given, uh, money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. <laughs> it's like, keep bringing him in. I want that money. Okay, I want that bribe. But after two years, now that's two years in the prime of Paul's life, gone. And from a, a, a worldly perspective that there is no God, that's just a waste. That's a waste. But God was up to something far bigger than Paul's freedom. You wonder why even today there's so many pastors around the world locked up in prison. Man, that's just, from the world's perspective, what a tragic loss. From our perspective, it's injustice. We need to fight for those, those pastors and Christians. However, God's perspective is so different. And from Paul, <laughs> from a biblical lens, we know Paul's imprisonment was all a part of God's plan. Extended time in custody, not only here, but throughout the rest of his life, that extended time in custody gave Paul ample time to write letters to churches and church leaders. Many of these letters make up at least 13 books of the New Testament. You wonder why there was this unjust situation that God allowed? That's why. That's why we have so much of the New Testament. So it wasn't just Paul preaching and those words disappearing. It was Paul writing the truths of God that he had been trained by the Lord with to pass on to us. But there's something even bigger, just as we close. That it wasn't just Paul that had ample time to write. There's another traveling partner of his who was there with him when Paul was imprisoned. What was his name? Luke. So Luke starts writing a book right now. This happened when Paul was in prison in Caesarea. How did he, lose, how did he use those two years? We, this is the beginning of the, the book of Luke. It's just how Acts starts. But that this time he was writing Luke. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, remember I said he was educated? He's a researcher. He's investigating. He's, he's doing eyewitness accounts of what happened. I've invested everything, from, invested 
investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Listen, Paul's two-year incarceration at Caesarea gave his traveling companion, Luke, the opportunity to travel the 60 miles up and down from Jerusalem to interview eyewitnesses to the birth. Why is Luke so detailed on the birth of Jesus? He likely interviewed Mary during these two years. Eyewitnesses to the birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He's going up and down the, the, the road to, up and down to, up to Jerusalem and back. And he's interviewing people and then coming back. That's what he's doing during this time. These two years gave Luke the opportunity to write a book so that his dear friend Theophilus could be sure what he had heard about Jesus was, was true. And that's why we have the Gospel of Luke. Now, I don't want to go into detail on who I believe Theophilus is. Um, I do believe he was an individual. And what I, I know from Scripture and what I read, if you just take it simply, is that it sounds like Theophilus was a friend of Luke who accepted Christ probably when Luke did on, one, on Paul's missionary journey. He accepted Christ, but now Luke is traveling with Paul. But he hears that Theophilus, his friend, is beginning to have doubts that what he heard was actually true. And so these two years, he wrote a book called The Gospel of Luke. And he researched everything and investigated and sent it to his friend Theophilus so that his friend Theophilus could know what he heard about Jesus Christ was true. From the world's lens, what a waste of time. But from a biblical lens, all the junk that they had to go through, everything, the chaos, the injustice, and everything, they could have peace because a biblical lens generates peace when your life is in chaos. The foundation of that lens is here at the table. We're going to be taking communion here. And we're going to remember what Jesus Christ did. Because Jesus gave his life for us, it gave us the opportunity to have our lives transformed by seeing our lives through a biblical lens transformed in Jesus.